Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Mike's Amazing World of DC History. It's been a while since my last recording. I bought a house last summer, and I've been really busy with that. So unfortunately, that meant the podcast had to take a back seat. I intended to fill the space between then and now with a short series of uh, the Runaway Collection series, but I wasn't really pleased with the quality of those, so only the first one ever got released. The reception to the episode was pretty weak also, so I really don't have any plans to fix and release the rest of that series. Uh, but if enough people demand it, you know, I can be persuaded to change my mind. Uh, but for now, just look for the regular uh, episodes in the, in the feed with the DC history being covered. In any case, welcome back to the show. If anyone has forgotten, or in case this is your first episode, let me give you a recap of uh, what my show is all about. My name is Mike Voiles. I've been a collector and reader of DC Comics almost my entire life. During my early teenage years, I came up with the idea of collecting and reading every DC comic ever made. There's a lot of them. Uh, Over the next few decades, I have built up a huge collection of DC Comics, including every book published between 1960 and 2010. I'm still filling in many of the Golden Age books in paper form. But not long ago, I was able to finish the collection in other forms, uh, be it reprints, microfiche, uh, digital media. So now I can read every DC story from the beginning, and that's just what I intend to do. I'm reading everything. That includes superheroes, humor, westerns, sci-fi, and yes, even romance. It's close to 50,000 issues in all, and it's obviously going to take me a long time to complete. As I read through this collection, I intend to share with you, the listeners, information about the stories, the characters, the creators, and the company itself in more or less chronological order. It's a lot to cover, so strap yourselves in, and we're headed for a heavy dose of DC history. Last time out, I covered some of the new creators and features from 1937. Today, I'll be closing out 1937 and getting into early 1938. During this time, the company, which would be known as DC Comics, was under the control of Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. The Major, as he was known, was a former cavalryman and pulp fiction writer turned entrepreneur. He founded the company known as National Allied Publications in 1935 and was now publishing two titles under the name Nicholson Publishing Company. More Fun Comics and New Adventure Comics were the two titles. Early in 1937, he entered into a partnership agreement with Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz. Harry had taken over his family's printing business and was a pulp magazine publisher which produced titles such as Spicy Detective. Leibowitz was the numbers and accounting man. These two men, along with partner Paul Sampliner, had formed their own distribution company, Independent News, a few years earlier. The partnership between Nicholson, Donenfeld, and Leibowitz created the company known as Detective Comics Incorporated, the source of the DC Comics initials. While Nicholson had control over his original two titles, a third title, Detective Comics, was launched in early 1937 under the control of all the partners. A fourth title was in the planning stages and would debut in 1938, Action Comics. Before that title would debut, There would be a shift in the balance of power at the company, and I'll be covering that later in the episode, so stay tuned. 
The comics of 1937 were produced by a number of artists under the direction of Nicholson and his two assistant editors, Vin Sullivan and Whit Ellsworth. Although the comics Indicia listed the executive offices at 432 4th Avenue in New York City, artist Craig Flessel recalls them working out of the fourth floor of the Holland Hotel on 28th Street. Flessel was one of the primary artists for Nicholson in 1937 and was the regular cover artist on both Detective Comics and New Adventure. He recalls the office as having a large editing room with a big table in the middle. A moth-eaten leather couch was also located in the room and was frequently occupied by employees taking a smoke break. He also recalls that the room was often filled with unsold comics that had been returned to the publisher. Unlike today, when comics are sold from, pub from publishers to wholesale distributors, then to retailers on a non-returnable basis, in the early days of the comic industry, comics were returnable. This meant that the publisher would print a given number of copies, and then the distributors, independent news in this case, would send them out to retail newsstands for sale. Any copies that didn't sell in a given amount of time were pulled from the newsstand and returned through the distribution channel back to the publisher. The date displayed on the cover of a comic was the indicator to the retailers and distributors when to return the comic, not when the book went on sale. Most comic fans know that when a book is cover dated June, it really went on sale much earlier. Some assume wrongly that this was always two months. This is not true. The gap between the release date and the cover date has varied over the years from one to five months, usually depending on the publisher and the time period in which the book was published. Marvel and DC still use a two-month gap, but some publishers, like Dark Horse and Image, do not. In any case, comics were returned to the offices of Nicholson's company, and credits were issued to the distributors and retailers who had received those copies. Distributors did not pay for those unsold copies but Nicholson still had to pay to print them. These unsold copies certainly led to some financial problems. More on this later. In addition to his work doing covers, Craig Flessel contributed artwork to several different interior features, the most notable of which was Speed Saunders in Detective Comics. Speed's debut in Detective Comics number one was drawn by E.C. Stoner. Flessel assisted by inking that story. Flessel then became the full artist on the feature, beginning with his next appearance in Detective Comics number 3, cover dated May 1937, but on sale in April. Remember, the cover date indicated to the when to remove the comic from the newsstand, not when it went on sale. In Detective number 3, Speed, an agent for the Harbor Police, takes a pleasure cruise to Long Island Sound. Once at sea, aboard his small sailboat, the detective finds a stowaway. The girl is Laura the sister of a dead inventor who left her plans to the typewriter. Do you remember typewriters? They were this big deal once upon a time. Remington Rand, the company that produced typewriters, was a frequent advertiser in old comics. They often had full-page ads on the back cover of comics in the 1930s, including Detective Comics number 1. Anyway, criminals led by Spider Liverman want to steal the plans to this typewriter. They chase down Speed's boat, and when the crook's bored, he tricks them into, by pulling the drain plug on the boat, causing it to take on water. After the crook's abandoned ship, Speed replaces the plug, empties the water from the boat, and then, and then apprehends the crooks. All in all, 
a pretty standard fare seven-page detective story, albeit with no detective work. The art was serviceable, but not great. Flessel continued as the illustrated on Speed's Adventures through issue number 15. During that time, Saunders did some actual detective work, tracking down murderers and bank robbers. In one story in Detective Number 6, Speed deals with the mystery of the lost ape. This could be considered the first DC guerrilla story, a trope which would become popular, at least on covers, in the early 1950s. That story is a cross between King Kong, Frankenstein, and, a, and the video game Rampage. A scientist puts a human brain into a gorilla body, and in typical fashion for stories of this type, the creator is, is destroyed and killed by his own creation. But not before the gorilla goes on a rampage, which includes him throwing sticks of dynamite onto city streets. Flussell's artwork did improve over the course of his Speed Saunders run. The splash page on Detective Number 11 depicts a nice rendition of battleships entering New York Harbor. But the real improvement was in the action sequences, some of which seem to have been inspired by Joe Schuster's work. One of the nicer scenes from Detective Number 12 shows a campfire fight which uses both shadows and light effectively. One distinctive facet of Flessel's artwork was the way he depicted characters on the run. They would be shown to almost levitate in midair. This detail is illustrated quite beautifully on the cover of New Adventure Comics number 17, which shows a boy with a bow and arrow being chased by a bear. The boy's feet never touch the ground. Unfortunately, the Speed Saunders stories, written by Gardner Fox, were not all that great. You could tell that Fox was trying to pack a, in a fair volume into the story, but with only six pages to work with per issue, the stories frequently felt overly compressed and sometimes disjointed. Another problem was that Speed's ever-changing occupation. Sometimes he was a G-man, other times he seemed to work for the local police, and still others he was described as just a private detective. While he works with the Harbor Police in New York in many adventures, he also travels to tropical islands on at least two occasions and is involved with a rodeo. Near the end of Flessel's run on the feature, Fox introduces Doris Dane and her nep nephew Dick as supporting characters. Both make their debut in Detective Number 14 during a search for Doris's missing brother Malcolm. They appear again in Issue 15, which is supposedly the first of a continued story. However, as is sometimes the case with Golden Age stories, the continuation was never printed. Instead, beginning with Detective Comics number 16, Speed began an entirely new case with artwork by Fred Gardner. Is it possible that a lost Speed Saunders story drawn by Craig Flessel existed? Maybe, but the artist's transition occurred at the same time as the big company shakeup, which I'll be talking about later in the episode. In addition to his work on Speed Saunders, Craig Flessel also created a cowboy comedy feature called Hanko the Cowhand. The feature ran in Morphone Comics number 20 to 29. Hanko made at least two return appearances in the 1939 and 1940 New York World's Fair comics, which showed him attending the fair. Flessel began another adventure-related strip called Buzz Brown, which debuted in More Fun Comics number 30, replacing Hanko. Buzz is a young boy, probably around 12 years old, uh, who was born in Alaska. His father was a fur trapper and his mother was an Eskimo. However, Buzz is now an orphan and begins a life at sea. After stowing away aboard a freighter bound for China, 
Buzz is found and tossed overboard. He is rescued by Sandy McLean, a blonde beachcomber with his own sailboat. The boat is soon caught in a, hurric in a hurricane. Sandy is knocked over the side. Buzz dives in after him, returning the favor by saving his life. The duo is then pulled into the ocean, by, or pulled out of the ocean by a pirate captain. The story continues in More Fun Comics number 31. In the second episode, Sandy's last name is inexplicably, inexplicably changed from McLean to McDonald. He and Buzz are kept as prisoners until a group of mutineers release them. Sandy finds guns hidden in the ship's cargo of grain and uses them to arm the mutineers. He is appointed the leader, but before they can act against the captain, Buzz is caught. A gun battle then breaks out on the deck of the ship. At this point, the story is to be continued. However, much like the Speed Saunders story I just mentioned, the next chapter never appeared. I suspect the reason for both discontinuations is the same, so stay tuned. As for Buzz Brown, I really like this feature. Compared to Speed Saunders, the writing on Buzz's stories were far more interesting. Flussell's artwork here is far superior to his early Speed Saunders stories, and I would have liked to see where this adventure went. Alas, it was not to be. It does occur to me after reading many of these 1930s comics that stories featuring maritime adventures were quite common. This subgenre of adventure stories has nearly disappeared from modern fiction. I suspect that the cultural fascination which inspired stories about the sea has largely been replaced by adventures in outer space and some other forms of science fiction. That's not to say that tales of the sea have disappeared altogether. Uh, you've got movies like Pirates of the Caribbean uh, that prove that. I'm just saying that I don't see the quantity of them, and they're usually pirate-related now. There's not just uh, seafaring adventures, especially not in comic book form. Craig Flessel was not the only artist working on multiple features in 1937. Several other artists had features spread across DC's trio of titles. Sven Elvin, who started working for the major in 1936, was the artist on three of these features. Captain Quick, which I covered back in Episode 7, continued its run in New Adventure, ending with number 25. Quick's adventures were a period piece set in the 16th century. I recall that I did like the first Captain Quick adventure, and the second one begins in New Adventure Comics number 14. The story begins with Kendall Quick's ship arriving from Spain into the English harbor of Portsmouth. He is then raised to knighthood by Queen Elizabeth herself, and is then ship sent on his ship, the Bonnie Bess, to the Caribbean to fight the Spanish. See what I mean? Here's another tale involving an adventure at the, uh, on the high seas. Anyway, Quick uh, soon becomes involved in uh, privateering, survives an attempted mutiny, and is then captured by the Spanish. After being nearly hanged, the Englishman escapes and hides out at the bottom of a well. When his pursuers pass... Captain Quick dons Spanish clothing to disguise himself, but when his cover is blown, he takes refuge in a near, nearby jungle. He befriends some natives who help him defeat the, a group of Spanish soldiers. Quick then helps them build their own seagoing vessel with cannons stolen from the Spaniards. And in the, ne in the next uh, chapter, there's a conflict at sea. Uh, Quick and his Indian crew prevail and he heads for the English port uh, royal, where his fiancée Marjorie awaits. Quick helps drive off a Spanish attack at the port, 
and during which Marjorie is nearly killed. She does survive, but on the eve of their wedding, Quick receives new orders from the Queen and sails away. This fast-paced tale is a, is a serialized adventure, and it was surprisingly good, despite some pretty obvious flaws in both the story and the art. Uh, the focus was definitely on the action, which had some fairly incredulous details, such as how in the world did one man and a few Indians construct a warship uh, capable of going against the Spanish fleet? Uh, the art was done in Elvin's typical illustrative style, uh, though some parts of it, especially the figure work, were quite sketchy. And of course, the story was all told in captions rather than having dialogue balloons like you would associate with most comic books. I've mentioned the style before in previous episodes, as it was pretty common in this day. Uh, still, despite some of the quibbles, uh, I, I kind of like the story. The story ran in four-page installments from New Adventure number 14 to number 23. Some installments were black and white. Uh, others were in color. Uh, I think I enjoyed the artwork in the color segments best because they covered up some of the sketchiness in Elvin's artwork a little better. Uh, no installments of this series appeared in issues 21 or 22, uh, but 23 did have uh, both a four-page conclusion to this uh, Spanish tale and the start of a, another tale to follow. I won't go into too much detail on that final Captain Quick story, which ended again in mid-story in New Adventure number 25, save to say that he visits the uh, burgeoning Plymouth colony and runs afoul of some Indians. Like Buzz Brown and, and the truncated Speed Saunders story, the Captain Quick tale is abandoned in early 1938 without warning to the readers. Something was clearly afoot. Uh, keep listening. I promise to reveal what that something was uh, later on in the episode. Did you know that at one time, though, Sven Elva held the record for the longest story published in a comic book? That's right, he did. As I pointed out several times in previous episodes, comics of this form from the, from the 1930s contained several short stories, many of them were serialized and extended over many issues. However, each installment was generally only two to four pages per issue. As time moved forward, the length of these features generally increased. Today, comics generally have book-length stories. They're often serialized over many issues. By the end of 1936, the longest tales Nicholson had published were four pages in length. Two separate 10-page stories had appeared in comics published by the rival company, Comics Magazine, founded by ex-Nicholson employees John Mann and Bill Cook. These were the longest single-issue stories to date. However, in early 1937, that record would soon be broken by Sven Elvin when he delivered a mammoth 12 pages that ran in New Comics number 13, cover-dated February. The tale entitled Foe of the Borgias was billed as complete in this issue, a thrilling picture novelette of the days when hate, greed, and murder ruled governments. The Borgias were a family which rose to prominence in Italy during the Renaissance. The story specifically mentions Cesar Borgia, which places the timeline for this story in the late 15th or early 16th century, sometimes shortly after the famous voyage of Columbus. Despite the title, the Borgias themselves actually don't feature prominently in the story. The story opens on Raphael Colonia, a nobleman betrothed to Princess Yolanda. Raphael is attacked by an assassin sent by Asensio Malastesta, uh, who has already kidnapped Yolanda. 
After stopping his own would-be murder, Raphael wants to mount a rescue mission, only to discover that his foe's forces have joined those of Cesar Borgia to surround the castle. Colonia dresses several of his men in Borgia colors and sends them out to fight uh, his opponent's forces outside the walls. This sows dissents between the two attacking armies. Instead of pressing the attack on the castle, the two allies turn on each other. In the confusion, Colonia exits the castle. He then tracks down and rescues Yolanda. There are some good action scenes here featuring sword fighting and a chase on horseback. Uh, these are even rendered in Elvin's somewhat sketchy title, style, but it's actually not too bad. Like Captain Quick, panels have no dialogue. The story isn't told entirely in captions below each panel. What's arguably different here is that the panels were larger than in the Captain Quick stories. Elvin regularly uses just two to four panels per page compared to the six or eight he used on Captain Quick. There are even three full-page spreads on this story. I believe I may have mentioned in a previous episode that the first time Nicholson's comics used a full splash page was Detective Number 1. This story actually does beat that out by one month. Elvin's record-length story of 12 pages was also beaten out by a 13-page Slam Bradley story in Detective Comics 1 the following month. Oh well, it's not like anybody keeps track of the longest story in history anyway. Uh, I do think that this story is notable for showing the evolution of longer stories with larger panel art uh, to showcase uh, the artwork rather than uh, these cramped uh, stories with multi, uh, multiple, page, multiple panels per page. Uh, this was something that uh, Siegel and Schuster did regularly with great effect on Slam Bradley and later Superman. In addition to illustrating original features like Captain Quick, Elvin was also tasked with doing adaptations of novels. These book adaptations uh, ran quite frequently in these early comics. I mentioned Elvin's work on the adaptation of Ryder Haggard's novel She in a previous episode. Beginning in New Adventure number 23, immediately after the conclusion of She, Elvin began working on a Robin Hood serial, a loose adaptation of the 19th century novel The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood. That novel introduced many of the familiar aspects of the Robin Hood mythology, though stories about Robin Hood had actually existed for centuries before the publication of the novel. In fact, I'm not sure how much of this is actually an adaptation of a novel and how much is just a telling of the Robin Hood legend. Having never read the book myself, I can't really say, uh, but I do think that this is a, a, an adaptation rather than just a freelance mythology or legend telling. Uh, this telling shows young Robin coming to Nottingham for employment. He is teased by some forest men who trick him into shooting a stag belonging to the king with his bow. Robin is arrested and carried into town where he is freed by Will Stutley, a woodcutter. Some chapters of this story are printed in black and white, others are in color. Surprisingly to me, uh, the color chapters show Robin dressed in a yellow tunic with blue pants and a red cap. Uh, not his traditional green, which I've become accustomed to. I wonder if the version I think of is more like a Disney version, uh, but I don't know for sure. After being released from captivity, Robin Hood uh, rescues several other men who join together as a band of outlaws. Robin is elected their leader by besting the other men in an archery competition. He later meets Little John, 
a master of the staff, while crossing a brook. Little John first knocks Robin into the water with his staff, then joins his band of merry men. The fight is wonderfully depicted by Elvin. Of course, this classic battle always brings to my mind the Looney Tunes rendition featuring Daffy Duck and Porky Pig. The story continues as more men join up with Robin Hood, including Will Scarlet and Friar Tuck. In each case, the men first meet and fight with Robin as adversaries before joining his outlaw band. This mirrors the classic cliché when superheroes meet. First they fight each other, then they team up to stop the villain. The Robin Hood serial ends in New Adventure number 30, despite a promise of to be continued. Unlike the other cancellations I mentioned earlier, this one takes place in the fall of 1938, several months after the other ones. I really did like this serial. Most of the novel adaptations that I've covered to this point have been really dry. This one was much better, containing a good mix of humor and action. Unlike his work on Captain Quick and the Borgias, Elvin uses dialogue balloons in support of captions. This series was drawn almost a year after the Borgia story, so perhaps Elvin was adapting to the medium of comic books. In fact, by the end of the serial, the text is mostly dialogue. Elvin's art is actually, actually cleaner on this as well uh, than it was on the Borgias, much to my delight, because his artwork can get really sketchy at times. Despite turning in some good work on those features, I think Elvin is mostly remembered for his work on Cosmo, The Phantom of Disguise, a feature which ran in the first 37 issues of Detective Comics. I covered the first Cosmo story in a previous episode. Compared to the other features by Elvin, the Cosmo stories are quite dull and very formulaic. Each six-page story is told complete in a single issue. Cosmo is a detective and a master of disguise. He is called in to assist on cases involving counterfeiting, kidnapping, robbery, smuggling, and of course murder. Nearly every one of the Cosmo stories shows the detective sitting at a desk across from either a policeman or his client. He is shown to smoke a pipe. The scene is repeated over and over, and in fact the very first Batman story shows a similar scene with Bruce Wayne chatting with Commissioner Gordon, just as Cosmo would have done. It would not surprise me at all if Bob Kane actually swiped this from Elvin, as he was quite well known for swiping other people. In any case, the Cosmo stories would invariably have, the, have Cosmo assume a disguise of some sort to outwit or uncover the perpetrators of the crime. Cosmo's adventures took him around the world to India, Africa, and other remote locales. A few stories in the middle of the run tried to mix in elements of a spy story, and Cosmo even had a couple of western adventures in Texas. However, by and large, 
These stories lacked interest for me in either the story or in the artwork. The stories lacked action and were very dialogue heavy. In some cases, 30 or 40 word monologues would be used to relate the plot to the reader in a single word balloon. Elvin's artwork, which seemed to be improving over time on his other features like Robin Hood, got progressively worse toward the end of the Cosmo run. Perhaps the artist himself was disinterested in the feature, just like I was. Following his work on Cosmo, The Phantom of Disguise, Elvin left DC for Fawcett, where he did a few stories starring El Karim in Master Comics. Running alongside Cosmo in those early issues of Detective Comics was a feature drawn by Homer Fleming, Buck Marshall, Range Detective. Buck also got his start in Detective No. 1, and his feature ran through issue 36, missing only a handful of issues along the way. I covered the first Buck Marshall story in episode 10 of my show. Unfortunately, Buck stories, like Cosmos, don't have anything to make them special. Buck is a cowboy detective who travels from town to town. Each issue has a six-page story featuring a different town. However, the tales of bank robbers and cattle rustlers all seem pretty stale. And when I read them, the details don't even seem important. Most of the Buck Marshall stories were black and white. Only the last few were printed in color. Fleming's artwork is decent, and his storytelling is serviceable, just not exciting. Many people have trouble getting into Golden Age comics. This feature kind of illustrates why. Fortunately, there has been some good variety in other features to keep me interested. Fleming's other contribution to Nicholson's 1937 output appeared in More Fun Comics number 27. It was another western strip entitled Yucatera. This eight-page story featured Jack Wyatt, a U.S. Marshal. Except for the name of the lead character, this could have been another Buck Marshall story. The only other exception was the layout. While Buck Marshall generally had six to eight panels to a page, each crammed with dialogue, the Yucatera had no more than four panels per page and included a splash page. As a result, the story didn't feel quite as dense and impenetrable. Still, the story itself was nothing special. Marshall Wyatt tracks down an outlaw who stole a woman's money. This was Wyatt's only appearance. Following his work on the Buck Marshall strip, artist Homer Fleming went to work for All-American Comics, working on The Whip, a masked adventurer with Western roots. Another veteran at National was Tom Hickey. Of course, veteran in these early days means they'd been around for a year or two. Hickey was drawing two features for in More Fun and another in Detective Comics. The longest running of those strips was Wing Brady, which started all the way back in New Fun number one, though Hickey didn't get put onto the feature until number 11. Wing Brady was a serialized feature involving the French Foreign Legion. I covered the first serial in episode four of my show. The second serial began in More Fun number 19. Wing Brady, an officer in the Foreign Legion, fresh off his capture of the Arab Ali Ben Saad, is assigned to escort Lynn Harding to Tunis, where she will be reunited with her father. He is, he is also to search the city for evidence of arms smuggling. Wing completes the first stage of his mission. Lynn receives a big kiss from her father. Wow, that kiss looked pretty inappropriate for a father and a daughter. I'll post the page in my show notes so you can check it out for yourself. Holy incest, Batman! Following his parting with Lynn, Wing spots 
Abdul Krim, a known criminal in the streets. He follows, but is caught spying. He is taken captive aboard a boat, then escapes by starting a fire. He doesn't get far, though, as a beautiful woman named Nina pulls a gun on him. She takes him to Count Mario Falashi. The Count wants vengeance because Brady killed his brother, who was a traitor in the Foreign Legion. Once again, Brady escapes. This delay causes him to miss a dinner date with Lynn. The next day, Wing resumes his search for the smugglers. He located Abdul Krim again and finds out that he is the head of the smuggling operation. Aided by a black ex-Legion man named Moros, Wing is able to capture Abdul Krim and is promoted to lieutenant. One oddity of these Wing Brady strips is that two episodes were published out of order. Wing captures Abdul Krim in more fun number 25, then begins a new adventure in number 26. Then number 27 has the epilogue to the Abdul Krim story where Wing leaves his girl Lynn behind in Tunis to rejoin the Foreign Legion. Clearly, the pages from Morphun number 26 and number 27 ran out of sequence. This isn't the first or last time that such a mix-up will happen in these early comics. Obviously, some editorial oversight. One thing I notice now is that this feature has a very Terry and the Pirates feel to it. Terry and the Pirates was a popular syndicated newspaper strip by Milt Caniff, which debuted in 1934. Caniff left the strip in 1946 and started Steve Canyon. Terry continued in the hands of other artists until the 1970s. I've recently tracked down and read some of the Caniff strips in the last year or so. I can definitely see a Caniff influence in Hickey's artwork. Wing resembles Pat Ryan from the Pirate Strip. Lynn is often drawn like some of Caniff's women, such as the Dragon Lady. Wing even hitches a ride in More Fun number 24 from a blonde boy that looks suspiciously like Terry Lee, the title character of Caniff's Strip. Brady's adventures continue with an interlude featuring a boxing match between Wing and another member of the Foreign Legion, Jim Paget. Of course, Wing wins the fight, then sets out on his next mission. That mission involves a treasure map, a girl named Jill Bradford, and a drunken soldier is cut short unexpectedly in Morphun number 33. Once again, a story is mysteriously cut off in the middle. However, in this case, Wing's adventures pick up again in the very next issue, with Hickey staying on as the artist. It's just a new story. We never do get the conclusion to the Jill Bradford tale. Compared to Cosmo and Buck Marshall, the adventures of Wing Brady are masterpieces. In reality, they're just pretty good. Hickey does a good job with storytelling and action, even if he is taking some style cues from Caniff. He is pulling it off well. The stories are really engaging. This serial gradually gets more pages per issue over time. It starts out at two pages, then four, and eventually leading to six pages per issue. I've got a high opinion of this strip, and think anyone who enjoys Terry and the Pirates would also enjoy Wayne Brady. Good luck finding it, though. You've got to track down some really expensive issues of More Fun, or read it on some very poor quality microfiche. Shame. Remember that I mentioned that apparent mix-up with the stories in More Fun number 26 and number 27? Well, the same thing happened on another Tom Hickey strip in those very same issues. Hickey was drawing Mark Marson of the Interplanetary Police, a science fiction adventure strip. I covered the first Mark Marson mission in a previous episode. A new story starts in More Fun number 26. Or does it? More Fun number 26 
begins with Mark and his partner Monty being recalled from vacation to investigate the murder of Lord Greystone. Yet in Morph number 27, we see Mark beginning his vacation. Greystone's murder also takes place in number 27. Clearly, parts 1 and 2 of this story were, or were printed in reverse order. As I mentioned, this isn't the first or the last time such an error would take place. As for this story, it's pretty good, uh, much like an episode of a typical cop drama, except Marson has a flying car. The primary suspect in the murder is a cloaked giant. The murder weapon is a hypodermic needle containing the venom of a forked cobra. The giant turns out to be a fake. It's really just a man on stilts. The investigation of the cobra venom leads Mark to the zoo where he questions suspects. Then suddenly, after the episode in Morphine number 31, the serial comes to an abrupt end right in the middle of the story. Mark Marson hasn't been seen since, though a few episodes of the, pre of the previous serial were reprinted in the ultra-rare Double Action Comics number 2 and in Warrior Comics number 1 from 1946. The Mark Marson stories were printed in black and white. Sometimes a second color, red, was used. Hickey's artwork is not quite as dynamic on this strip as it was on Wayne Brady. I see less of the Caniff influence, which indicates to me that he may have been intentionally copying Caniff on Wayne Brady rather than adopting that style as his own. The art isn't bad, though. It's just average. There isn't much action in this story, either. It's an, it was intended as a science fiction story, and although set in the future, I didn't really get a science fiction feel to it. If this was trying to be like a Flash Gordon ripoff, it's not really accomplishing that well. Overall, I found it less enjoyable than the first Mark Marson adventure that I read in Episode 9 of my show, but it wasn't awful. Over in Detective Comics, Hickey continued as the artist on the adventures of Bruce Nelson. These adventures were inspired by pulp detective novels. Nelson himself was not a detective for hire, but he takes cases which have a particular interest to him. A two-part Bruce Nelson tale entitled Blood of the Lotus began in Detective Number 9. Bruce is approached by Philip Pomery to find his missing niece who is believed to have joined a Chinese cult known as the Lotus. Nelson's Chinese assistant, Sing Lee, warns Bruce that the Lotus is a very dangerous Tong organization. But Bruce has a special set of skills and will find the girl at any cost. Bruce and Sing Lee then begin searching the Chinese underworld for leads on the girl Lois Woodworth. Sing Lee is captured by the Tong. Bruce then spots a former associate, Slug Cully, who betrayed him on a mission in Singapore. Bruce uses Slug to lead him to the Lotus leader, who holds Sing Lee and Lois captive. Bruce arranges for their release, which also leads to an obligatory fight. Once Bruce and the others make complete their escape, Bruce confronts Pomeroy, who, is actually, who had actually arranged for the girl to be kidnapped in the first place. He had squandered her inheritance and wanted the girl out of the way. He tried to convince everyone that her interest in cults and didn't think Bruce would actually be able to find her. But in the girl's words, he tried to get me to take an interest in strange cults. I hated them. He tried to make me queer. Instead of turning Pomeroy over to the police, he tells him, you don't deserve it. But I'll give you a break. If I don't hear that you've committed suicide in the next six hours, I'll finish the job. Rather than kill himself, Pomeroy leaves town, just what Bruce wanted him to do. This story is pretty decent. There wasn't much action to it. It was largely dialogue-driven. Still, the story worked on many levels, 
most notably the pacing. The Bruce Nelson stories benefited from having 12 pages an issue to work with, so the story didn't have to be crammed into a small number of pages. Despite a lot of dialogue, it didn't feel like it was a bunch of talking heads. However, the artwork was nothing special. Given that this was the same artist that drew Wayne Brady, that's a little surprising. But the, but the truth is, the story didn't really call for anything special in the way of art, so there was little chance for Hickey to flex his artistic muscles. The Adventures of Bruce Nelson continued all the way to Detective Comics number 36 in 1940. Just like Cosmo and Buck Marshall, Bruce's adventures ended just about the same time as superheroes were coming onto the scene en masse. Hickey continued as the artist on the strip until the very end. He then left DC for Fawcett, where he drew the Jungle King feature in Master Comics. His departure mirrored that of Sven Elvin. Most features of this time were given more pages per issue to develop. Bruce Nelson's adventures were an exception. They gradually shrank from 12 pages at the start to 6 pages per issue. This indicates to me that Bruce wasn't one of the more popular strips. I tend to agree with this, uh, and the later adventures became more and more tedious to read. Of course, I've tried to read most of them in a single sitting instead of just one story per month like as an issue would come out. Uh, my experience could be different from readers back in the day. Still, my takeaway from those later stories was a bland sameness to all of them. Slightly more interesting than Cosmo, but not by much. It seems that the pre-Batman contents of Detective Comics were largely unmemorable reads, with the exception of Slam Bradley. I admit, I just skimmed the, the last few Bruce Nelson and Cosmo stories because they couldn't hold my attention. In contrast to the rather stale reads in Detective Comics, the other two national titles at the time offered a variety of strips. These included adventure, action strips, science fiction, and humor. The variety made these titles much more palatable to me. The only variety in early issues of Detective Comics was a series of four-page tales by Russell Cole, which I call the Alger Mysteries. Cole is an artist whom I've discussed in previous episodes who used the pen name Alger, hence the name Alger Mysteries. Uh, that's not an official title, it's just something I've kind of grouped these set of stories into. His unmistakable style for drawing short squat characters, which appeared in both gag and adventure strips, kind of was what made Russell Cole distinguished, or distinguishable, I guess, uh, when you see his artwork. In Detective Comics number 1 to 16, Cole drew a series of short features, each with a different character involved in a mystery. The first handful of these strips were all told in rhyme. The strips featured no background art. Each panel just portrayed a goofy-looking character. With issue 5, the rhyming was dropped and the backgrounds were more developed. Uh, the characters had names like Handcuff Hawkins, Hot Trail Hogan, and Fingerprint Farson. Bring them in Brannigan. Bring them home Brannigan was uh, from Detective Number 15. Uh, had an eight-page tale instead of the usual four, so he got twice... Uh, twice the normal length. The only character to make a return appearance was Bloodhound Brown, who appeared in Detective Number 8 and More Fun Number 35. After Detective Number 16, the Alger Mysteries moved to a new DC title, Action Comics. More characters such as Sticky Mitt Simpson and Elmer the Eel were introduced in the first six issues of Action. Two final Alger Mysteries appeared several months after Action Number 6, 
Handcuff Hank, not to be confused with Handcuff Hawkins, appeared in More Fun Number 47, and Plainclothes Pete made his sole appearance in a rather significant issue, Detective Number 27, the same issue which introduced Batman. Given how sporadically the last few strips appeared, I have to wonder if they were just leftovers that had been sitting in a drawer until some empty space needed to be filled in one of the books. The Alger Mysteries were a blend of humor and mystery, but in my opinion, they didn't succeed at either. Cole's artwork looks goofy, and it isn't without charm. The stories just weren't great. I really prefer some of Cole's other work, like Woozy Watts, which I covered back in episode 8 of my show. One other Alger one-off tale appeared in New Adventure Comics number 21. This tale starred Shifty Smith and was slightly different from the Alger Mysteries. The eight-page story had larger panel sizes and very little dialogue. The artwork, while still recognizable as that of Russell Cole, seemed to deviate from the short, squat figure work in the Alger Mysteries. Some of his people are drawn with more normal proportions, still in a cartoony style, though. The story involves a purse snatcher who disguises himself as a woman, then as an old man, in order to evade the police. The police think they've seen through Shifty's disguise and arrest Professor Brown, an old man who looks like Shifty in a white beard. I did rather like this story. It was much more enjoyable than any of the proper Alger mysteries that uh, were appearing in Detective Comics. Most of the other humor artists working for Nicholson didn't really have a regular assignment. Their work just appeared kind of at random in, in the other two books. Uh, these artists included uh, Bill Patrick, who contributed a strip called Ebony in New Comics number 12 and Monty of the Mounties in New Adventure number 23. Ebony was just a one-page gag starring a very racially stereotypical character. Um, the less said on that one, the better. Uh, Monty was a six-page story featuring a mounted policeman in search of the villainous Black Louie. There's a cute scene in which Monty is camping for the night and his horse steals his blanket. Uh, the villain in this one is defeated by his battle axe of a wife who tosses him out of the house for not wiping his feet. And I did kind of like this one. Uh, Vin Sullivan, uh, he was spending a considerable amount of time working as one of uh, Wheeler Nicholson's assistant editors. Uh, despite that added workload, uh, Sullivan still found time to draw a few covers and an occasional gag strip for the, for the titles. Uh, Laughing at Life was a two-page humor story that started all the way back in New Comics number four and five. The title of the, the series was then revived in New Comics number 10 to serve as kind of a heading for a feature which showcased uh, just a bunch of single panel gags. Uh, the new gags would appear in two-page inserts uh, that were usually used as the centerfold for new adventure comics between issues number 10 and number 23. Most of the single panel jokes would depict a situation with a humorous piece of dialogue or a caption. Some of the jokes were mildly amusing, but most were pretty weak. Uh, examples include a, a woodpecker pecking into a flagpole where a man is attempting to set a record as a flagpole sitter. He's on top of the flagpole as the woodpecker's chopping down the pole underneath him. Uh, a refrigerator salesman trying to sell uh, one of his uh, refrigerators to an Eskimo and a kid using his grandfather's enormous beard as a hiding spot in a game of hide-and-go-seek. Uh, Sullivan also did a few character-focused humor strips, including uh, Plato Smith and The Count. Compared to the single-panel gags, these strips were actually pretty cool. Uh, in one, Plato Smith 
His last name is spelled with a silent P at the beginning. Uh, he learns hypnotism. Uh, he uses the new skill to make a woman cluck like a chicken and turn a policeman into a little boy. Uh, but when Plato tries to use hypnotism on his boss uh, to try to make him give him a raise, it doesn't work. And uh, Plato must, uh, concludes that his boss must not be human since the hypnotism didn't work. Uh, artist Gordon Booty Rogers, uh, he did a couple of short strips for the major in 1936. Well, he returned in 1937 for one more issue. He drew an eight-page feature called Samson Jr. in More Fun Number 26. That story involves a young boy named Samson who has a crush on Delilah. Uh, when she is in danger, uh, Samson fights uh, and defeats a runaway steer. I have no idea how the oddly colored animal got loose in the city streets. Uh, the, the steer is colored pink. <laughs> in any case, after defeating the steer, he hopes Delilah will think of him as a hero. Instead, uh, the girl wasn't even watching the fight. She was staring at a poster of a singer she was enamored with. Uh, maybe Justin Bieber. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe a little too early for Justin Bieber. Whit Ellsworth, the creator of the long-running Little Linda feature, was Nicholson's other assistant editor. Just like uh, Vin Sullivan, he drew the occasional humor strip and a few covers. Uh, some of his one-off strips included Mr. Meek from More Fun number 14, Clout O'Casey from New Comics number 9, The Colonel, from New Adventure number 16, and Jonah Jones from New Adventure 21. None of these one to two page gags was particularly memorable, so I won't go into the details on those. A few other single page humor strips did populate the books like Ma, Pa, and Willie, Hal Sherman's Mr. Dude. I did read them all, uh, but they were more or less just filler. The last feature I'm covering today uh, debuted in New Adventure number 14, with art by Munson Paddock. The serial was entitled The Monastery of the Blue God. The lead character in the story is Douglas Stewart, a captain in the Army Cavalry. The story opens at the conclusion of World War I in Paris. Captain Stewart attends a party where he meets the lovely Baroness Elsa von Saxenberg. He quickly falls for the girl, but he knows he can't afford to marry her. In fact, with the war over, he is scheduled to be sent home where no job awaits him. When Elsa shows him a message from her father that may lead to a fortune in sapphires, the captain arranges for a transfer to China to hunt for the treasure. Captain Stewart is not the only one in pursuit of the sapphires. Swedish Count Kraft von Bolander and his partner Peter Slotny, a Russian spy, are also after the jewels. The villains lie to a Chinese governor who orders the Americans and his party killed. Only Elsa is to be spared. Stuart outwits the Chinese cavalry forces that are sent to kill him. He then confronts the governor and is invited to stay as a guest. After dining on shark fins, the governor tells him that the Monastery of the Blue God holds the fortune in sapphires. The Blue God was also mentioned by Elsa's father. Just what the Blue God is remains something of a mystery. But people seem to fear it. The governor still wants the, his guests dead, but he can't act against them without incurring trouble from the American military. He hopes that the blue god kills them instead. After parting ways with the governor, Stuart and his friends head for the Gobi Desert. They are attacked by Mongols. Though the, they fight off the attackers, another group sets fire to their encampment. Stuart questions one of the captured Mongols and learns that he is a follower of the blue god. Von Bolander 
had told his people that Stuart was an enemy. One of Stuart's men is sent to bring additional supplies. They are brought in by train, but the Mongols and Von Bolander plant a bomb which causes the train to crash. Stuart's man, Drenoff, survives the crash and must get away before the Mongols finish him off. Whether he escapes successfully is not known because the serial joined the list of the many that were unceremoniously truncated in early 1938. The last installment of the monastery appeared in New Adventure number 25. We never did find out what the Blue God truly was. The artwork on this series was extremely poor. <laughs> Paddock's artwork was very dark and sketchy, and sometimes it was hard to tell what was actually happening. Only one chapter in New Adventure number 17 was in color. The others were all in black and white with a second color red usually in use. In a few cases, there was an unidentified black blob on the panel, which I suppose was supposed to be a person. The story itself was pretty engaging. I just wish the artwork had been cleaner. I could have had a better idea of what was going on. As I've covered the various features in this episode, I've mentioned that the artist for each one of them. However, I haven't been stating who the writer was. That's because in most cases, the writer was not identified. In some cases, I'm sure, the artist was responsible for writing the strip as well as drawing it. This is especially true in the case of humor features. But the adventure features are often difficult to associate with a given writer. One exception to that, this time around, was the Monastery of the Blue God, which was explicitly stated to be written by Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, who served in the Army Cavalry, just like the lead character, Captain Stewart. Nicholson wrote many features in his comics without explicit credit. I suspect he wrote some Wing Brady and Bruce Nelson stories. He undoubtedly wrote others. Long before beginning his comic publishing venture, the Major was born Malcolm Strain in 1890. The family name was soon changed to Straham. His father died when Malcolm was four, and his mother then remarried a British man named T.G.B. Nicholson. She took her maiden name, Wheeler, and appended the name of her new husband to get the name Wheeler Nicholson. Thus, Malcolm Straham became Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. Young Malcolm grew up and joined the army as a young man. His army exploits took the cavalry officer around the world. He was involved in the chase for Pancho Villa near the Mexican border in 1916 and was stationed in the Philippines when the U.S. entered World War I in 1917. The same year, Wheeler Nicholson was promoted. He became the youngest major in the army cavalry at age 27. After World War I, his travels continued. He even made a stop in Siberia. In 1920, Malcolm married Else Bjorkman in Paris. They had five children together. During this period, Malcolm began to write letters and reports concerning military strategy and conditions employed by the army. The reports were critical of army protocol. The major felt that changes were needed and lives were being lost because they refused to make those changes. Nicholson's reports irritated his superiors. What was once a bright military career had turned into a dead end. Still, the major tried to get his message about army conditions heard. In 1922, he broke the army chain of command when one of his critical letters was published in the New York Times. A court-martial ensued. One night, before the court-martial hearing was to be held, 
Nicholson returned to the barracks where he was stationed. He was shot entering the barracks by one of the guards. It is believed that this was an assassination attempt designed to quiet the young officer. The attack failed to kill the major, though he was seriously injured. He recovered in time to face his court-martial, where he was ultimately convicted. He was forced into retirement from the army in 1923. Following his dismissal, the major turned to writing. Drawing upon his military experience, Nicholson crafted a variety of stories for the pulps and wrote a book on military strategy. In 1925, he founded the newspaper syndicate Wheeler Nicholson Incorporated. Among the syndicate's publications were comic strips, many of which were apparently adaptations of novels. It's no surprise that these same kinds of features, such as Robin Hood, turned up in Nicholson's comic books a decade later. I haven't been able to track down anything published by his newspaper syndicate, so I haven't actually seen the comics produced therein. The major syndicate did not fare very well and was shut down pretty quickly. Then came the stock market crash in 1929, which killed the entire United States economy. The entire nation suffered hard times. Nicholson returned to writing for the pulps. His family recalls the financial ups and downs of his writing career. When the major sold a story, the family led a modest yet not wealthy lifestyle. When the money ran out, there was a drop-off until he, he sold another story. In 1933, Eastern Color put together a comic book featuring comic strips reprinted from newspapers. Comic books had been tried before over the years in various formats. One of these early formats was published by Dell in 1929 and called The Funnies, but none of those formats ultimately caught on. The Eastern Color format, which was first used on a promotional comic called Funnies on Parade, was successful. When a price sticker was added to a later promotional comic the following year, it sold quickly from newsstands. In 1934, Eastern issued the first monthly comic book in the modern comics format, Famous Funnies No. 1. Nicholson had an interest in comics dating back to his days running the newspaper syndicate. With the success of Famous Funnies, Nicholson jumped into the comic book business in 1934. One of the stories out there is that the rights to all the best newspaper strips had already been snatched up, forcing Nicholson to look for new material. However, Nicholson had a background as a writer. He had a previous interest in writing strips. And the financial reality was that new untried material was actually cheaper to acquire than established newspaper strips. These three factors lead me to believe that Nicholson made a conscious choice to publish original material instead of being forced away from the reprint material by its lack of availability. Whatever the case may be, the result of that was New Fund Number 1, published in early 1935. It contained original material, much of, uh, much of that written without credit by Nicholson himself. Those early issues did not use the famous Funnies format. The format actually had more in common with Dell's 1929 series, The Funnies. Nicholson did soon adopt the famous Funnies format, beginning with More Fun Number 9. During those first couple of years, Nicholson's comics were selling, but not well enough to be sustainable. Many stories are out there about the major not being able to meet his financial responsibilities. Nicholson's family is adamant about the reasons for this. 
He did want to pay his bills and the creators responsible for creating the content of his comics. He just didn't always have the money to do so. He wasn't trying to cheat them. He just didn't have the money. So with financial issues looming for this young company, the major looked for investors and backing. He found them in the form of Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz. Harry, as I had mentioned earlier in the episode, had taken over his family's printing business years earlier. And he started up as a pulp publishing firm uh, under a variety of names. Uh, when his distributor went under, Donenfield and his partner Leibowitz uh, joined Paul Sampliner to form Independent News, the national distributor. And they were responsible for distributing Harry's risque pulp magazines and, uh, and also magazines for other publishers. Harry was a great salesman and he was well-connected. Uh, some of those connections were actually mob ties. Leibowitz was the accounting wizard and these men had the financial backing that Nicholson needed. Uh, plus they could act as a printer and a distributor because they already had those parts of the business. Uh, but their help would be really costly to Nicholson. Uh, part of the partnership agreement uh, was to form a new entity, Detective Comics Incorporated. Uh, the first comic they produced together was Detective Number One. And both of the original titles, More Fun and New Adventure, still belonged solely to Nicholson and were published under the name Nicholson Publishing Company, not Detective Comics, Inc. Uh, Nicholson was the publisher and creative force be behind all three titles, but still they weren't selling all that much. Um, they weren't selling poorly, but not enough to make a profit. Remember that I mentioned earlier in the episode about unsold copies piling up in the offices? When books didn't sell, they were returned to the publisher for, and a credit was issued. So the major was basically forced to foot the bill for those unsold copies because he was paying a printer and, and, and uh, shipping costs, etc. Uh, and it was, this is standard business practice for, for mass market distribution. So as a publisher, why not just reduce the number of copies printed? Print only the number you think you can sell. The answer to that is the distributor. Now, now pardon me why I put on my economics hat here. Let's say a publisher prints 40,000 copies for distribution because that's how many he thinks it's going to sell. He thinks, I can sell 40,000. Uh, he takes those to the distributor, and that distributor gets a piece of the sales on those copies as well. But the distributor has costs just like the publisher does, uh, and he may need to sell 35,000 in order just to break even. He has fixed costs, and he needs to sell 35,000. So if he sells all 40,000, He's going to make a really small profit. However, what happens if the book that they're expecting to sell 40000 only sells 20000 The distributor is going to lose money, just like the publisher is going to lose money. And that distributor is taking a risk. And in the best case scenario, he's only going to make a small profit. So why take such a big risk when there's so little reward? Instead... What the distributor is going to do is he's going to require a larger print run, say 80,000 instead of 40,000. That way, if the entire print run sells out, the distributor makes a nice profit. If he sells the expected 40,000, he still makes money. And all the un unsold copies, the difference between 80,000 and 40,000, get returned to the publisher, and the distributor pays nothing for those. It wasn't a scam or a way to rip off publishers. It's simply the way that distribution was done in the mass market world. Uh, the size of the print run uh, wasn't necessarily determined only by the publisher. It was set during, in a negotiation process between the publisher and distributors. So who was the major's distributor? Independent News, a.k.a. Donenfeld and Leibowitz. 
And guess what? They wanted the major's company. So there is evidence that Jack and possibly Harry saw the, some potential in comic books, which were legitimate compared to some of the shady pulps that uh, Harry was publishing. Those were always under the attack by the quote-unquote uh, morality police of the day. Comics were not. It took another 10 years or so for the moral authority to uh, pose a serious threat to comics and would have nearly uh, shut them down, at least uh, in terms of content. Harry also saw properties like uh, The Lone Ranger making a lot of money for its owners. Oh, if only there was a way for, for Harry to get control of a character like that. Now, whether or not Harry or Jack thought Superman was going to be a big deal, that's not clear. Uh, they still wanted the major out. They wanted his company. And it was going to happen no matter what. Uh, one story out there is that the major was offered $75,000 to walk away. And he didn't take it. But with the major's negotiation power undermined by his co-ownership, the major had to pay his own partners for printing and distribution. And they were setting the, dis they were setting the number of copies. They were setting the print run. And he was behind on his bills. Ultimately... Harry and Jack, wearing their distributor hat, sued the major for non-payment. Uh, the major didn't have the money to pay to pay off his partners and was forced into bankruptcy. Leibowitz and Donenfield gained sole ownership of Detective Comics, Inc. And Nicholson's two remaining titles, More Fun and New Adventure, were purchased uh, by the new owners through a bankruptcy auction. So Harry and Jack got what they wanted for far less than that reported $75,000 offer uh, that was made to Nicholson or reportedly made to Nicholson. Uh, this power for control of the company went down in early 1935. And while it was happening, more fun and new adventure were placed in the hands of a trustee named Abraham Menon. Bearing March, April 1938 cover dates, more fun number 30 and new adventure number 25 both reflect this change in ownership listing A.I. Menon as the publisher. Menon was a lawyer supposed to be acting as Nicholson's bankruptcy attorney, but as I understand it, he was actually a crony of Donenfeld. <laughs> so he was actually working against his own client, uh, at least theoretically. Uh, once again, the major was taking it on the chin in a game that had, was apparently fixed against him. The end result was the major was out, Donenfeld and Leibowitz were in, and beginning with More Fun number 31 and New Adventure number 26, both those titles began showing Detective Comics, Inc. as the publisher in the Indicia for the first time. Uh, remember, all those stories that were cut off in the middle uh, I've been talking about throughout this episode, so they were never completed? Well, that cutoff took place at exactly the same time as the ownership change went down. Nicholson had been the creative force. He was editing uh, and handling all the content for all three books, and he was also writing a number of features. With the major out of the way, his assistant Vin Sullivan stepped into the editing role. Uh, Whit Ellsworth, who is also an assistant editor, departed, uh, but he'd soon be back. Many of the features presumably written by Nicholson uh, were discontinued or abandoned, and a few were continued with different writers. Uh, this explains the abrupt end to many of those features and stories that I covered. Uh, of course, the major's exit in early 1938 also paved the way for a fourth title to be launched in the spring under Sullivan's editorial hand, Action Comics Number 1. Uh, I'll get beginning to that landmark issue uh, in future episodes, uh, but for now, let me finish the major's part of this story. Uh, following the loss of the company he founded, the major left comics. 
his family explained that it wasn't a topic that was ever brought up in their household after that. Clearly, he was hurt. Uh, I mean, his company had been taken away from him uh, rather dramatically, uh, but his true feelings were never shared with his children. So we don't really know some of the details that were going on in his side of things. The kids recall that, that the comics were still around. Uh, they read them as kids, but they had after the major was out, they had no connection to the industry anymore uh, that they had prior to that. The children did recall that there was a garage filled with comics from their father's days as a publisher. Uh, presumably, it was full of all those unsold copies that I've been talking about. Uh, just imagine a garage full of issues of early issues of Detective and more fun and new adventure, a whole garage, maybe even some new fun issues. Those would be worth a pretty penny today. But the details of what happened to those comics is not well remembered. Presumably, I can only assume that some of them found their way into some of the recycling efforts and paper drives that were held during World War II, so they were all destroyed. But uh, I can only envision this garage filled with just these copies, uh, unread copies and in nice condition of all these 1930s books. Uh, it, it, to me, that's just amazing. Uh, anyway, the major returned to writing uh, following this, and he wrote again for pulp magazines and books. Uh, he raised his kids, but he never really got back into comics. Uh, he passed away on New Year's Day, 1968, and his legacy in comics should have been huge. I mean, here was a guy who started up DC, what became DC Comics, but he's instead largely forgotten by, by most of the comic uh, enthusiasts out there, uh, and that's a real shame. Uh, in recent years, his family has worked hard to dust off the Major's legacy uh, as a true pioneer and founding father of not just DC Comics, but as the as, of the comics industry in general. I mean, here was a guy who went out there and started publishing original material. I mean, that that was a new thing. I mean, new, original material had been tried before. There was Detective Dan in 1933 and a few other things, but this was a regular thing that was all new, and and he was the first one to do it. Uh, anyway, more information on the Major and his life is available out there at MajorWheelerNicholson.com. Um, and there's also a wonderful art, a series of articles in Alter Ego number 88, uh, the Roy Thomas uh, magazine, uh, published by, I believe, Tomorrow's. Uh, so you might want to check that out as well. Some wonderful information about the Major. He's a hugely, hugely important uh, figure in the in old comics and... He's just forgotten, and that's that's a damn shame. So this ended the era of the company that would become known as DC Comics. And of the 90 or so men and two women <laughs> who produced comics for Nicholson, uh, none of those people are alive today. Craig Flessel was the last of them to pass on, and he, he died a few short years ago. And uh, not many of those... Uh, 90-odd people were still even around at, uh, at the company when, when the major was out. Most of those who did stay left within just a couple of years. Uh, Siegel and Schuster were the two exceptions, and they did stay. Uh, they became superstars in the industry and uh, took the industry to unimagined places, unimagined heights. Uh, eventually, they ran into their own battles with Donenfield and Ligowitz, and uh, that story, those battles... That's going to wait for another day. I'll, I'll be getting to that eventually. But needless to say that they had their own legal struggles. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed my look back at the Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson era of DC Comics. 
It was a very interesting interesting time. The major was a fascinating man, both both inside and out of the comics world. So I salute him and his creative vision that has brought forth such a wealth of enjoyment for me and for many, many others uh, in the years that followed. He started it all. I'll be back soon with some more interesting comic stories and tidbits from the dawn of the DC Comics in the near future. Keep your eyes open for my next episode. I'll be back. This is Mike's Amazing World of DC History. Thank you for listening.